early this morning when I was thinking about this talk, I thought I'd call it the grace of connection for a reason that I'll tell you in a moment. But then uh, when Larry was reading uh, that beautiful uh, sutra this morning, I thought, no, no, I'll call it Becoming Friends with Infinity. Uh, So actually I'm going to call it both. And uh, I'm actually going to talk about equanimity as uh, the uh, Brahma Vihara, which I think is the... Uh, the ground out of which metta and karuna and mudita uh, all emerge in different as different permutations and uh, combinations of uh, goodwill and a reflection of wisdom. I was going to call it the grace of connection because I was reading uh, a uh, review in the New Yorker of a play called Wit. that actually has already been a movie, but I haven't seen it. But it's back on Broadway, and it's a play about uh, a woman who's dying of... um, She's dying of cancer. And uh, she's a woman who has kept herself aloof. She's a professor, and uh, she's a professor and uh, is genuinely erudite, genuinely able to use words in such a way that that set her apart from other people and put people down. And it's her own erudition that's kept her own uh, sense of personal pride, but also really isolated her from connection with other people. And at one point in the play, it's painful because here she is dying and uh, really not, not connecting at all emotionally. And at one point, uh, the nurse who's taking care of her is giving her some morphine for her pain. And she says, um, I trust that this will have a soporific effect. And the nurse replies, well, I don't know about that, but it sure makes you sleepy. (laughs) And Vivian begins to giggle, a giggle that builds into a belly laugh, and her laughter works as an embrace rather than as a judgment an act of sharing rather than of separation. She goes on, she said, no, no, no. She startled Susie. She said, no, no, no. She said, it's really funny. And it says that at that point, the whole play changes and everyone is suddenly shocked by the grace of connection. The grace of connection. Moments of connection are a grace. I thought about my friend Martha when she was dying. Uh, it brought to mind, she died five years ago this month. And maybe the day before she was dying, or the day, or I was standing next to her bed, and uh, we were carrying on the kind of conversation that you have with someone who's just on the edge, so they're sometimes there and sometimes not, and we'd be talking about something, and then all of a sudden her voice and her conversation would trail off into something that didn't make any sense. And then at one point she pulled herself back and she said, oh, wait a minute. She said, I think I'm not making any sense. So I said, well, that's all right, sweetheart. You know, at this point, you know, you're dying. So that's what happens in the mind. She said, I know. She said, but I think I'll be boring to you. (laughs) So we looked at each other 
you know. And it's so in, in, incredibly ludicrous if you're on the brink of death to be worrying about whether it'd be boring. So we, you know, we looked at each other. We both started to laugh, and it was a great moment to remember her like that. You know, the grace is connection. I think it made those moments easier. I remember her passing in terms of that last moment. Well, the last moment of my friend Tamara, who I called in her, uh, she was in a hospice in Florida, and the nurse said, she's, I can't ring her room, she's, um, she's too, she has no strength, she can't pick up the telephone. So I said, well, can you go in and hold the receiver near her ear? And they said, yeah, well, we'll do that, hold on. And then they put the receiver, and I'm talking to her. And she said, this is really hard. And I said, I know, sweetheart, but you know, it won't be long. She said, I know. She said, but it's really hard. She said, oh, wait a minute. She said, the nurses are adjusting my blankets. She said, the nurses here have been so marvelous. They are like angels. They are the best. And that was the last conversation I had with her. And I was so glad that her last minutes was sweetened by her own mudita, her own her own connection with appreciation for these people who were taking care of her. I thought, what a gift. I hope I can do that. It's a, that, that kind of connection, whenever you make it, lifts you out of your story. The connection itself lifts you out of your story. I'm dying to, we're laughing together, I love you, or I'm dying to, they're very lovely here and they take good care of me and I'm grateful. It really rescues us from our own being trapped in our own self-centered view. It's a grace. I hope I'm able to manage that at that time. I wanted to say about that connection means to me that you care about something. So we think about uh, metta as goodwill and compassion as that flavor of goodwill that's meeting difficulty. And mudita as that flavor of goodwill that's meeting uh, something uh, dear or uh, wonderful that you can appreciate, or even uh, the, the, the kind of bittersweet appreciation when it brings up some yearning in you. It's a connection of compassion and caring. I was aware the other day when uh, Heather was giving her first instructions about compassion, and she used the word care. She said, I care about your pain. It's my caring that is a consolation. The caring is a consolation. Sometimes people have said to me when I've become hugely uh, optimistic and positive about the world's going to save itself at the very last moment, and then, because I really believe it, what's the alternative? I, half the world is less than 30 and they can all text each other and say, let's live differently. I think it's going to happen. And they said, do you, and people say to me, do you think it's going to happen? And I said, I don't know, but I hope so. And if it doesn't, and the whole experiment doesn't work, this experiment of life on earth, I want to be amongst the consolers at the end of it. It'll be a, the better team to be on at that time. <laughs> For myself, as well as other people. For myself, that it's a consolation for oneself to be able to care. 
in the movie Avatar, do you remember how many people saw Avatar? How many people saw it more than once? <laughs> I know people who have seen it four times. And they always say, what I liked is that people, when they connected, said, I see you. I see you. In a way that means more than I have a visual perception of you, but I really deeply see you. I care about you. My friends who uh, um, do hospice work regularly tell me stories that all echo the ones that I told you, but the thing that I wanted to remember to tell you is most of them tell me when they're sitting with someone who's past speech and really at the, at the edge of passing over, that they generally want to hold hands. And that if you hold hands with them, if you give your hand, you've probably had, you maybe have had the experience, if you give your hand, they hold on to it. They hold on to it. I think we want, and, and we hold on, not because we want to hold people back, but we want to accompany them to that edge. There's a, a, a uh, there was a, a philosopher from Scotland, I've forgotten his name. A friend of mine did her doctoral thesis on him, and he said it's all about um, hands that reach out. And he said hands catch you into this world, and hands do whatever they do with you at the end of this world. And in between we get passed hand to hand. And I love that idea of that we get passed hand to hand. I think when we sit here doing resolves and blessings for people all over the place. We're holding hands with them. We're extending a hand in our hearts, a a mental, a virtual hand. May you be okay. Here, I'm sending you a blessing. My friends who do hospice work also tell me that it's so meaningful to them because in addition to feeling that they're accompanying this person on their journey, they're learning for themselves the, 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 the fundamental truth that life, like everything else, is finite. It, it begins and it has an end. It's a natural thing to get born. It's a natural thing to pass out of this life. And sometimes both of those experiences are fraught with uncomfortableness for one reason or another. Sometimes they go easily, either one of them. But to be a, a witness and a participant in passing is to make it part of the normal thing. One of my friends said to me the other day, when I get to do it, I'll do it just like that, I hope, because I'll know how. Someone keeps showing me how. So I want to take that word care and carry it along a little bit. Because one of the things I want to make clear is caring is uh, in whatever flavor it manifests, is the difference, is the opposite of indifference. Indifference is, I don't care. Do you remember the, the Maurice Sendak children's book, Pierre? Do you remember Pierre? I won't do the whole Pierre. But anyway, Pierre, in essence, is a, a difficult child who says to all of his parents in treaties, <coughs> I don't care, you want to do this, you want to do that, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And his parents say, we're going to town, do you want to come? And uh, he says, I don't care. So his parents leave him there, and a lion comes in and says to him, I'm going to eat you. 
And he said, I don't care. <laughs> so the lion ate Pierre. And then his parents come home and they say to the lion, where is Pierre? And the lion says, I don't care. <laughs> and his parents say, Pierre's in there. So they shake the lion up and down. And here, of course, emerges Pierre. And he says, I care. So, <laughs> and it's, it's a really a story about I care. It's really a matter of life and death. Do you want to live it? You want to live, you want to care. That's a very, that's a crucial story. Maury Zendek, you can find it. So caring is the opposite of indifference, and indifference is the near enemy, is what's called the near enemy to equanimity. Equanimity you think about as being balanced, and indifference can masquerade as equanimity. I'm so poised, it's all the same to me, Nothing. it's all, it's all karma emerging, it's not my business. I, uh, one of the saddest sentences I know in the English language, the terrible phrase to use, people say, I couldn't care less. That's awful. I mean, that when you think about, if you think about, there are some things that we don't maybe care about so much, but you couldn't care less is really bad. <laughs> And to think about a person who's so sure that they couldn't care less. <laughs> but it's, a diff- it's the opposite of equanimity. Equanimity is that you know what's happening, and you care, and you hold it in some sort of a balance so that you can respond to it. Out of wisdom. You know, the, the meta-responses of the... Uh, the uh, the uh, goodwill and compassion and appreciation. They're the spontaneous responses of a heart that's somewhat balanced, a heart-mind that's balanced. You don't have to say, hmm, what should I do now? Should I feel compassion or should I feel this? The heart responds in permutations and combinations of goodwill when it's available. I think what, what my, my, my experiences of equanimity is that my mind is available. When people say to me, what's your practice? I think they often think that I'm going to respond by saying I sit or I walk or I pray or I study or I parent or I grandparent. Those are all practices that I do in my life that I think I could, I could explain as part of my life as a person who wants to wake up and have a, a clear mind. But my practice is really that. My practice is developing a mind that's awake <coughs> and cares. So I, I, I think of myself as doing metta as a primary practice, but I am not going around all day long saying, reciting blessings in my mind. But I do check, as my check during the day, do I care? In this moment, am I capable of caring? And if, if you know, as I, sometimes my mind is depleted or uh, fallen into a funk about something or other. And if I, oh, well, wait a minute, what can I do to pick it up here? Maybe I can care about myself. Sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath, calm down, take another breath, you'll be all right. Well, here you are back again, you know? I care about myself. 
if I notice that my, my mind is out of sorts and unbalanced. So I wanted to read the middle part of the Metta Sutta because we've been studying it and we did three, three sentences out of it last time. I actually think the Metta Sutta is the whole of the path condensed in one sutta. It's my favorite thing, actually. And the first uh, 12 or 13 lines, as uh, probably I mentioned the other day, are really ethics training, which is the foundation for everything. But the middle part of the sutta is really such a, a, um, a mandate to, for the practice of unremitting goodwill. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or, or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded. That's, that's actually the mandate. That's the practice. It's radical. It's the most radical thing. It says, omitting none. Sometimes when I begin to teach metta practice, a metta retreat, introduce it, that often people will ask, wait a minute, you're not going to ask me to include so-and-so or so-and-so. You know, all beings, okay, but not so-and-so. <laughs> who either is somebody who did me wrong a long time ago or yesterday or whenever, but somebody who personally is in my life or somebody who's personally in the world or was in the world and did a lot of destruction to people, to me or to people that I knew. Not them, everybody but them. But really, everybody. And it's not about liking everybody. It's about keeping a mind that is absolutely free of contention. That's what it means. May I be free of enmity and danger, a mind that's free of contention is a mind that's wide open and wide awake. It's contention of any kind that shrivels the mind up and hinders clear seeing. If I think about, may my mind not be in contest, contest, contest with anything. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Not hypothetically, but actually... May I not have a context, a contest, contest with it. There are things in the world, it doesn't mean everything is okay. It means things require fixing. But may, may I care about them and fix them, but not resent them. A mind without resistance. I was thinking about that when Larry read the sutta this morning becoming friends with infinity. And I was thinking about that both in two ways as he read it. I was thinking about the mind when it feels quite open and spacious. 
and relaxed. And it seems like thoughts go through or feelings go through, but it's not a big deal. And I was thinking of the Tibetans who have that wonderful saying, uh, all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. I love that. You know, like if, if the walls of the mind are pushed back far enough, there are no hooks to hang the stories of your history on, you know, so that you can't hang the story on any hook, so you can't remember it. They fall away, those stories. So they're too much trouble to remember. They're just stories, you know. You know, a story comes into your mind, takes up so much energy, and then all of a sudden, it's gone. And you realize, my mind is exhausted. I just did that story for the 5,000th time. I didn't need it. It wasn't a new story. We don't tell ourselves anything new in these stories. Hardly. Somebody came in today and said, I never tell myself a new story. It's the same story over and over. Many stories, but over and over and over again. So I thought about that, about the spaciousness of mind in which all hindrances are self-liberating. But then I thought about it, because we're up to that in our metta practice, in our Brahma-vihara practice, we're up to all beings. I thought about the spaciousness of mind in which every being is in there, and I have become a friend to it by not being in contest with it, by not resenting it. When Larry said that line about becoming friends with infinity, I thought about becoming friends with everything in infinity, with nothing that's a problem, no problems. And I remember he was saying, maybe yesterday, or at some point, talking about the rain, that goodwill being like rain that falls impartially on everything. And I was thinking about that, that the rain falls impartially, falls where it falls, and... I was thinking about compassion or kindness or goodwill not having anything to do with the objects out there. It has to do with this heart radiating goodwill. That uh, Sometimes the metta sutta is a sutta on impartial, the Buddha's teaching on impartial kindness. Impartial kindness is what it is not making any differentiation between you or you or you and you. And it's not that I forget that I like some people better than other people, or it's not that I forget that some people are really difficult and maybe even harmful people to have in the world, and you have to respond appropriately to all of that. But without enmity, without enmity. And I was thinking about uh, as we go through this and we keep adding more categories of people, it sounds like, well, now we'll send to this and now we'll send to that, as if we have not been sending metta to this or that, and, that, and, and it just, we haven't named it in our mind. But metta is not like email. <laughs> you know, that, that, uh, that having a heart that radiates kindness is kind of like having a computer where you push always the send all. You know that the, that if if my if my heart is radiating kindness, it's like pushing the send all, reply to all. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, and then I'm a happy person because I have no I don't have to remember this is a story I have on this person or this is a story I have on that person. I'll tell you a story right away about stories I had on this or that person <laughs> and why it wasn't so helpful. 
the thing is, when you when we send, people say, "Do you believe that the metta? Do you, when you wish well for people, do you send blessings to them? Do you think it works?" So I, yeah, I do think it works. I don't know how it works on the other people. People have told me stories of spending a month or two months wishing well to this or that parent that they were estranged from, and lo and behold, leaving the retreat and the parent had changed their mind and it was a whole new thing. And maybe, how do I know? I hope it goes out to all these people that I think about. I love thinking that. But I don't know. What I absolutely know is that it works to change my heart. That this whole practice of now this person, now that person, now try this person, now try that person. It's like going to a gym. Try this weight. Now we'll try the slightly harder weight. Now you worked up to this other harder weight. Can you do this weight? Really, it's like a gym for the heart. And see, can you do it? Because when the end, when you find, wow, look at that, I can think of this one and that one and that one, and my mind is not, the essential piece of my mind is not disturbed, you feel triumphant about it. That's great. I can think about this person. I don't have to forget in what ways they were difficult in my life. I just not have to have any enmity towards them. And by and really bl- blessing them, wishing them well, relieves me from any residual mm about them. So I'll tell you some stories. Um... John said the other night about um, Goenkaji saying, uh, just do metta all the time. And um, uh, as he said that, I remembered uh, a story that, uh, about going, going to Dharamsala in 1995 or six, I think. I was with a... Um, I was among... 27 Dharma teachers from different parts of the world who had the great pleasure of meeting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala for a week. So we traveled from all over the world to get there. It's a very long travel. Uh, From here I flew to London with uh, two friends who were West Coast people and we met someone else in London, and then we flew right on to Delhi. And then we spent the day in, in Delhi, uh, waiting for the evening, and we converged all these people in a certain hotel. And then we left on the night train and went up to, uh, up to Dharamsala, up to Patankot, and then over to Dharamsala. It was a very, very long ride. And for the evening, uh, in the evening of the day we were going to leave that hotel, people uh, stepped into the restaurant in the hotel to have dinner. And uh, for whatever reason, I didn't feel like having dinner. I was sitting in the lobby. And across from me, uh, not ha- also not having dinner because he's a Theravada monk and they don't eat afternoon, was Mahagosananda, the very person that Larry was talking about yesterday, the this extraordinary uh, little man who was at the time the senior prelate in Cambodia who had known so much personal grief and who had remained steadfastly of so much help to people because his own loving heart was preserved and he could share it with people 
and inspire them. And uh, so I look across and here's Mahagosananda uh, who's sitting on a sort of a bench right across from me. And uh, I remember looking at him and he's a little man in orange robes and had such a serene face. And I knew that uh, you, that the, the clergy don't eat afternoon, monks don't eat afternoon, but that they could have tea. Uh, but they can't buy their own tea because they're not carrying money. But there was a tea shop right adjacent to the, the lobby there. So I went across to him and I said, uh, Venerable, can I offer you tea? And he said, that would be lovely, thank you. So we got up and we went into the tea shop and I ordered tea for the two of us. And we were having tea and I, I told him how happy I was to meet him and that I knew from a friend of mine that he had been part of a peace march the previous year uh, that had gone from Auschwitz in, uh, on whatever date in April was the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. The, there's a symbolic opening of the gates and a delegation of people, peace workers and people, people like Mahagasananda, peace workers of various faiths. Um, and several of my friends were there walking symbolically out of Auschwitz and beginning a walk that was picked up by other people and walked and walked and walked and the walk ended in uh, Hiroshima on uh, August 6th. 6th, 6th. And I don't think that Mahagosananda walked the whole way, but he walked the beginning and he walked the end. And so I told him that I had heard about him from my friend And then we talked about a few things, and I said to him, Venerable, what are you doing now? And he said, well... uh, And he reached into the sleeve of his robe, and he took out uh, a petition. And he said, well, I'm traveling around always with these petitions to get a ban from the UN to end landmines, because there's a lot of trouble with landmines that are left over, that are exploding. So I said, can I help? He said, yeah, you know, that you can take this petition and take it back to Spirit Rock. But I was so touched by the fact that he was really, you say, generally we have an expression, what have you got up your sleeve? He actually had this up his sleeve that monks don't wear a lot of clothes. They have robes on, you know. But honestly, when people ask the question, what does being a monk have to do with changing the world? that he was one sleeve away from actually giving me the petition, not even telling me about it, but giving me the petition to take back to Spirit Rock to have other people sign. And that touched me enormously. And I really, it stays in my mind because I saw him as a tremendous uh, symbol. I think about him a lot as a symbol of equanimity because he had such poise about him. And at a, but, uh, and uh, the poise that's able to say, this is what's happening, this is what happens, this is what's going on, and not that it's okay, it's not okay that there are landmines exploding still, or that there are landmines in the world that people are planting still. 
it's not okay. But you could have equanimity, you could have poise, and you could have a petition up your sleeve to do something about it. And I was tremendously moved by that. I thought of his practice of may all beings be peaceful and happy, which is mostly what he said on that, on that, in all those meetings. May all beings be peaceful and happy. I think it was his practice to create equanimity, equanimity and to sustain equanimity and to manifest equanimity with kindness and goodwill and petitions for whoever would take them. So there was another thing that happened to Dharamsala. I realize now it's going to be a little bit of a disclosure of... uh, Okay, whatever it's a disclosure, I started, so... And... uh, Anyway, it was, a, it was an important story. The first night we met in Dharamsala, people had come from all over the world. So I knew some of them we'd met in Delhi, but not everyone. And the first night that we, uh, that, uh, we were in Dharamsala, here we are all sitting, 27 of us, in the main salon of this particular hotel that we're staying in, and uh, mostly huddled in blankets because it was, it was cold. And um, my friend, uh, I, when, I, when I went in and I looked around the circle of people, I realized that there were oh, maybe half of them I knew. And half of them were new to me, I didn't know them. And of the people that I didn't know, or that I did know, I watched my mind say, oh, there's so-and-so, good, 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 I know that person, oh, good, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so, ugh. <laughs> You know how your mind sometimes does that? You know, that, uh, you know I, uh, this is the disclosure part. And they say, oh, good, 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 good. Ugh. Yeah. That's, I mean, for, for whatever reason, three and a half years ago in a teacher meeting, in some conference, they had said something not so supportive of me. Uh, whatever it was, I had a little list tucked away. <laughs> That tr- everybody comes trailing a story, you know. And these people are trailing a story of, I don't like that. Well, they're trailing a story of, they did me wrong, they said something upsetting. Okay, so I said, uh, good, good, good. <laughs> so then my friend Jack Cornfield was chairing that meeting, and he said, um, uh, I'd like for us to all get to, we have to introduce ourselves. And you know, often when you're in a big room, people say, introduce yourself say, you know, where you're from, what you do. And uh, people often give their curriculum vitae, you know, where they live and what they teach and, you know. Uh, but he didn't, that, this is not Jack's way. Those of us who know him well will find this familiar, that he said, well, go around the room and each person here will say their name and they'll say, what is the most difficult spiritual challenge facing you now in your life and in your work? So, ah, dun, 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 dun. You know, (laughs) seriously, he could have said, we'll all stand up and take off our clothes. It would have been, it it would have been less distressing that because, I mean, what else, I mean, what could be more, you know? And here I'm sitting three quarters of a way around and I'm thinking, ah, I have to say, ah. 
But also, I've just come this enormous long distance to Damsala. I can't go home. Uh, and I can't lie, either, because you can't, you know. So they start going around the circle, and one after another, uh, people say, they're, you know, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so, and my biggest challenge in my life is this, and in my work is this. And I was so moved. And then the next person said, and it's so touching, everybody told the truth, and everybody, nobody said, I don't have it. No challenges. Everybody had right away an answer. My life, this, and my work, that. My life, this, and my work, that. I thought, oh, 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 look at that. And then I realized that accidentally I went by the people that I didn't have such a good feeling about, and I felt, oh, about them the same way. I accidentally forgot to not like them. (laughs) And I think, and it's such a huge story, because we continue to not like people as long as we remember the story that we've constructed that keeps us separate from them. I don't want this, that, and the other. But when we're moved by compassion, everybody's got a story. Everybody struggles. Everybody's got problems. Everybody's doing the best they can. It doesn't go smooth with anybody. It's not a surprise. I don't even remember what anybody said, actually. I don't even remember what I said. But everybody had stuff. That was the thing. Nobody doesn't have stuff. That's actually the basic insight in this whole practice, not only in Dharma teachers and Dharamsala, but in the world. Everybody's got stuff. If I sit in an airport and I see all these people walking by that I don't know, going or coming from here or to there, you don't know, and about what? Are they going to a birthday party or their brother's funeral or this or that? or Who knows? But they've got a mind full, a universe full of stuff going on in there. And if I look about it, they whoa, look at all these people. They got up this morning, they put on their shoes and socks, and they went out, in spite of the fact that they're going around with a whole universe of stuff in there. It's, it's heroic of human beings to do that. So those people uh, ceased to be on my list of... In a moment of wisdom, which is what happens when compassion fills the mind and it balances equanimity, you have that wisdom, everybody's just like me. And they said what they said that caused me pain. Because at that, those moment, at that moment the causes and conditions were such that they said it. Fundamentally they're good, we're all good, everybody's here teaching Dharma, everybody wishes the best, nobody is anybody's enemy really. I don't need this list. In the world, I don't need a list. It was such a relief to be finished with a list. I don't have to stay with those people who I don't enjoy their company or, and I certainly can remember who it's not helpful to be with or possibly harmful to be with. But I don't have to have ill will. It's such a burden in my mind. That ugh in the mind, the mind contracting, is such a burden. Put it down. Just remember, everybody's a person, and they're doing the best they can. Always. I don't think I told you this since we're here. I tell it often. You tell me if I told it. Uh, About years ago, on a Wednesday morning, saying to the group, 
in in response to everybody saying, you know, it's about managing in life. When you say to somebody, how are you? And they say, I'm fine. doesn't mean everything is going smoothly. It means they're managing. And really, that's to, to be able to know if I'm fine means thank you for asking. I'm managing. And I have my share of challenges now. So I said, how about it? We'll just all have like a class password on Wednesdays when you meet people. You say, how are you? And you recognize them from class. They'll say, I'm fine. We'll realize that and that means I remember you're in the class and I, like you, have a life. So we talked about it. Everybody said, good idea. And then somebody said, Gwen, said, I never say I'm fine. When people say, how are you, Gwen? I always say I couldn't be better because I couldn't. It takes a minute, doesn't it? But it's brilliant because it's true. We couldn't any of us ever be better than how we are. When I'm cranky and unpleasant and giving my family a bad time or my friends or whatever, I couldn't be better. If I, if I could, I would. Nobody purposely <laughs> suffers. And when I get that, I'm kinder to other people and I'm kinder to myself. I mean, you know, I, I do something, it's inept, I say something to one of my family, one of my nearest and dearest, I say something stupid. And I, I make amends and I apologize and all of that. But I don't give myself too bad of a time about it because I couldn't be better. If I could have, I would have. And it's been so freeing. It's been really so freeing. It's been really... Um, maybe it started in Dharamsala when I realized afterwards, because when I felt better about all these people, I sought them out, I had lunch with them. When I, when I, when I did, I didn't say, by the way, you'd be interested in knowing I had a three-year grudge on you, but, uh, you know, but, but uh, cause that, that's not so necessary. But all of a sudden you find out they're a really nice person that I've been avoiding for these three years. We couldn't any of us be better. So there's one more story I want to tell you. It's a little story. It's not really a story. It's as much as an event. Yesterday I called someone whose name I knew a little bit. She's a spirit rock practitioner of some long time. And I heard that... Um, I heard that... Not, she's not a close friend of mine. And I heard yesterday, I was surprised to hear it, that her husband died two or three months ago. So I phoned her up, just to say that I'd heard about it, and I was sorry to hear it. And she was glad for the phone call and glad for the condolence. And she said, um, she said, you know, 21 months went by from the time that he got his diagnosis until the time that he died. And we'd been together many, many years. And those 21 months were the closest we had ever been in the 21 years. And the whole of the 21 years, she said they were all right, but we had a lot of things, a lot of rough edges that we thought about as our irreconcilable differences. And they were irreconcilable until he got the diagnosis. And then those things didn't go away. It's just that they didn't matter at all. They were nothing. They were nothing. And we were absolutely... 
in tune with each other and it was the most meaningful 21 months the closest we'd ever been in our whole time together and then she said the sentence that I wanted to really bring into this talk she said why do we not remember until the last minute so I thought that's really the important question why do we not remember until the last minute I think there are a couple of reasons why we don't remember until the last minute. One of them someone alluded to in one of the teachings in the last few days. Uh, I had a grudge on somebody for an extremely long time. Uh, Years I had a grudge on somebody. It wasn't someone in my immediate... And it's too long of a story, and the story itself is not germane, but this particular person wrote me a letter. It's a person whose, I, whose paths, our paths crossed in teaching, uh, but not, nobody who is in this room or you know. <laughs> in my life. But our paths would cross. And uh, at, one point, uh, and at one point we had been quite good friends. We'd been meeting regularly, talking about our spiritual lives and um, having lunch together. And uh, at one point, in response to an event which is not relevant to tell about, uh, he wrote me a letter that uh, made some allegations about certain character traits that I had that extremely hurt my feelings, really hurt my feelings. And I remember the, how upset I felt when he said that. You know, it was just a letter. It wasn't the front page of the newspaper, but you know, it was just a letter. But it hurt me so badly that I stopped my connections. And years went by, and we passed. And we, you know, because our line of work put us into contact with each other, and everybody was civil, but not more than that. And we'd been fairly close before that. And all the years of the grudge, a friend of mine, another uh, who was starting to teach loving kindness, said to me at that point, do you have anybody who you've put out of your heart altogether, Sylvia? Has anybody left you put out of your heart? I said, well, matter of fact, uh, I said, there's one person. And I, then, and I didn't tell the story to a lot of people because it involved telling what this person had said about me, among other things. So... Uh, <laughs> I have one person, and I tell the story. This already has a million things wrong with it, with gossiping and talking bad on other people, etc., etc. But anyway, I tell the story, and I got all finished, and she said to me, if there is one person standing between you and having a completely open heart, don't you think you could get over it? (laughs) That's a thought, you know. I was very struck by that. But the thing is, I couldn't get over it. Because every time I thought about it, I'm going to be going somewhere and I think I'm going to be, he's probably going to be there. And how could he have said that about me? And how could he have said that about me? And how could he have said that about me? And one night I was on my way someplace um, to some conference and I thought he'd probably be there. How could he have said that to me? And my mind was in a certain place of equanimity as I was driving and I thought, how could he have said that to me, about me? And I thought he said it because it's true. So that was quite startling. But when I realized that, I realized a great load fell out of my mind. And I realized that I had been mad for all those years because I didn't want to see that truth about myself. 
So we met that particular evening and said hello, but in a way, I could tell that I said a different hello than I'd been saying hello those many years. And we both gave some presentation, and at the end he said, do you want to meet for lunch? And I said, yes, let's have lunch. We had lunch, and we had another lunch, and we had another lunch, and by and by, months go by, and then I said, uh, you want to talk about that experience that we had X many years ago? I said, you know, when I got that letter from you, I was just so wounded, and I kept thinking, how could you have said it? And I went through the whole story again. And I said, finally, on the night that I talked to you, I realized you said it because it's true. And he said, no, it's not. (laughs) And then he said, you have no idea how bad I felt after I wrote that letter. He said, you know... In my life, I have been so peremptory. I have such a short fuse. I have a thought. I write a letter or I say something. I have destroyed more relationships from not being thoughtful about what I say. And then sometimes when I tell the story... So anyway, we, we have been since then friends and confidants. But so sometimes people say to me, you know... And he said, you know, I was too embarrassed to get in contact with you. And people say, you know, you're both people who are out teaching spirituality, waking up, all that. How come it took you so long to get around to that? I don't know how come. It just took a long time. Sometimes it takes a long time for whatever reason. The mind needed to block so much that truth. John said, I think it was John in his poem, said, the shadow melts away. What did he say? It was... The shadow melts away in the clear light of awareness close to that. The shadow melts away. That's the shadow that melts away in the clear light of awareness. The shadow is the place in your ego mind where you put what you don't want to see about yourself. In the light of awareness, you bring it into awareness. And actually when I thought about he was right, I am, and he said, no, it isn't, it was right. And it was also not right. I was like that on that certain occasion. I'm not always like that. Everything is a little bit right and a little bit not right. It's not. It's you know. It was just that I I I didn't want to see that about myself. So sometimes I think it takes a long time to forgive because we don't want to see all the parts of what has so offended us and built that wall. Sometimes we think to ourselves, I think to myself, in response to her question on the phone, why is it, why do we remember at the last minute? You know, it makes much more sense not to hold grudges, not to put anybody out of your heart. You don't have to remember who you have a story on. You know that uh, in the, in the Makata, uh in the operetta of the Makata, the Lord High Executioner, sings a particular song in which he says, um, uh, I have a little list, and he pulls out from his inside pocket a long scroll of people who never would be missed. So uh, I think that we all have scrolls that we tuck away somewhere of people whose names are on, that we that not missed is actually mild, not missed is one thing, but people are... 
And it's just hard to keep such a scroll. It's way better to, make, to actually be able to think. I don't have any enmity. There's some people I like and some people I don't like. and Some things that uh, I, I think really need to be addressed in the world and I hope I have the vigor to address them. It's not that, that everything is okay. Things need to be addressed. But I don't want to fatigue my mind with, um, with anger and not be able to respond out of clarity. My father, I remember, used to um, come to hear Dharma talks. Uh, My father's been gone uh, 25 years, 26. But in the beginning, he'd come and hear me teach. And he'd hear me teach about there's no point to, uh, uh, to anger. It only clouds the mind. And he would say, I think you're wrong about that. He'd say, everything else, great. So, but that I think it was wrong because he said he was a tremendous social activist and he said I need my anger to fire up my social activist mind I said I don't think you need the anger dad I think you need it it rises up spontaneously in, in, in awareness of injustice and it, it rises up in indignation and in despair and in determination to do something about it, but you don't have to carry it with you. It rises up, you know about it, and then you decide, okay, I'm going to do this. And you can do that with a clear mind without being angry at everybody. You know, there's a way in which, I, I don't know if I, I would have been able to say to him, or well, whether I even appreciated it at that point, the greater depth point about that, that, that anger clouds your own mind, but also whoever is doing anything really terrible, they're doing it because in, a, in a weird way. They couldn't do better because of ignorance or delusion. And the response has to be compassion and, uh, and, and firm determination to not have those people act in the world, but, but not to meet, and not meet anger and um, ill will with more ill will. There's enough ill will in the world to meet it with firm determination, education, concern, care for this world, what will I do? That everybody who's doing anything is doing it because of causes and conditions that go way, 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 way back. And what I do now in my life is also, what any of us does, is a result of causes and conditions all the time. I think about the um, the ways that equanimity actually is the basis for uh, the arising of goodwill and of compassion and of appreciation, uh, mudita. But equanimity is maintained by wisdom. This, these are the way things are. They're this way because of causes and conditions. Everybody is trying, everybody wants to be happy. It's confusing to meet the challenges of life. Can I have a mind that really wants to be a healer and not have enemies in it? Really that, um, that seems to be the whole of it. 
I'm thinking of uh, Goenkaji saying, just do metta all the time. Or Mahagavsananda saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy. May all beings be peaceful and happy. I heard the Dalai Lama doing um, um, teaching on um, the Kali Chakra initiation in Washington last um, last summer, um, and he said, "What you really need to do it's a it's a ten day teaching and uh, a lot of preparation for in the at the end to beginning to take a vow." to devote yourself to the well-being of all beings everywhere, forever and ever. And he said what you needed to be able to do that was a base of ethics and a mind filled with generosity of spirit. And I think the generosity means giving up all stories, all stories of enmity, all stories of otherness and separateness and differentness. Everybody is doing the best they can. And could I be a healer in this world? May I be free of enmity and danger, a mind that doesn't resent, doesn't contest. My friend Sharon calls it a heart as wide as the world. That's a nice place to end. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.